Orphaned at age 10 by a violent home invasion, Susanna Faulkner grew up wild, her stubbornness the only thing harder than her heart. Since then, she's used her skills to put a boot in the faces of those who deserve it. She knows she's wired wrong, but she's determined to wring something decent from the world before she leaves it. Never Go Home from Christopher Swan drops August 9th. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the global tent poles of action cinema, kung fu movies. Chinese martial arts films have been a thing since the 1930s. Most of them were what we call wuxia, uh, mythological stories that featured lots of swordplay as well as heavy fantasy and supernatural elements. But by the late 1960s, audiences were ready for something slicker and faster, featuring more realistic and violent combat scenes. What came from that was an utter explosion of new school kung fu movies, mostly from Hong Kong, but also from Taiwan. And they fell into two camps, mostly. The first camp were historical stories, kind of like wuxia, but without all the magic, often based on Chinese epics or just a romanticized version of Chinese history. The other were based more in the modern day, usually featuring combatants who, uh, for the most part, fought hand to hand. Now, this all blew wide open in the early 1970s, thanks in no small part to the instant superstardom of Bruce Lee, who in just four movies managed to transform action cinema and put kung fu movies on the global stage. Although Lee died suddenly in 1973, there were many ready to continue what he helped to start. And for the next decade or more, studios like Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, and Seasonal Films turned out hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of kung fu movies, in a bitter and relentless contest for market share. A lot of these movies were dubbed in English and licensed to Western audiences, where a fair few of them were actually box office successes. Many more of them would play in heavy television rotation, often during late night slots or on weekend afternoons under brands such as Kung Fu Theater. For many fans in the pre-cable TV and pre-VCR days, watching televised Kung Fu cinema was practically a ritual unto itself. Those days are long over, mostly because by the 1980s, Western movie makers had internalized a lot of Hong Kong kung fu elements into their own films, and the great Hong Kong studios of yesteryear more or less transitioned out of them. And by that time, cable TV and VCRs made the ubiquity of cheap kung fu flicks you know, not such a treasured thing anymore. But the genre never died, nor is it ever likely to. They experienced a resurgence in both East and West in the 1990s and in the early 2000s to increasingly global fan bases. Today, a great kung fu movie is just as likely to come from California as it is from Hong Kong. I adore this genre, and I'm really excited to talk about it now, so let's get into it. With me today is master of the broken sword technique, Chris Crenshaw. Actually, I was born with no name. Everyone called me nameless. The sixth deadly venom, Tom Hespos. So, you want to fight someone, huh? Fight me! <laughs> And the world's second hardest working stuntman, Joe Pace. Watch the step. 
<laughs> Welcome, everybody. All right, so we're going to go, I think, go in kind of chronological order today. So, Tom, why don't you kick us off? This genre is so ubiquitous to a lot of people. I think a lot of people know it, but don't really know specific movies per se, you know? So, so talk us through what you picked, why you picked it, what's it, what, you know, what kind of distinguishes it and where your moment of truth comes from. All these sort of Kung Fu movies from Kung Fu theater, like sort of blended together. They, you know, they all had the, the well-worn Kung Fu movie tropes, you know, the, the guy who walks the path and, you know, somebody's always messing with him until he sets him off and boom, yeah. uh, everybody's Kung Fu fighting. <laughs> uh, but a, I got there, which was by, you know, watching Saturday morning cartoons too long, basically. So he, he ended up in, you know, either uh, kaiju territory or, you know, monster movies or Kung Fu theater. So, yeah, yeah. The Holy um, Trinity. You know, and, and, and the, the other thing I, I love about it is like, I, I can't understate how big like karate and Kung Fu were in the early, for like an 80s kid. The Karate Kid, when that came out, was just so late into it. People had been faking that they were taking karate lessons for, for years and years and years. You know, every kid who was running around was like, I know karate, man. And and like maybe one out of 20 of those kids was actually like in a dojo, you know, doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it was just so big. And I think that was our introduction to it was this sort of like, hey, I watched Saturday morning cartoons too much and ended up, mm -hmm. you know, in Kung Fu theater. And, and, you know, what is this? It, it, it was just so crazy and so bonkers and out there. And these guys are just beating the crap out of each other on, you know, Channel 5 at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday or Sunday. And you're like, what exactly. is this? And it, it was so great, you know, just arriving there. And like, again, I, you know, I thought all the movies sort of blended together from that era, you know, when I was little. Yeah. And, and But, um, you know, of course, you had Enter the Dragon, you know, which everybody remembers and Bruce Lee. Yeah. But then, you know, like for some weird reason, there was this movie that stood out for me called The Five Deadly Venoms. Sometimes it's just called The Five Venoms. Yeah. But like it had this really sort of cool, almost like mystery plot to it. And it sort of stood out from the others because I thought it had a better plot. This kid, you know, he's studying Kung Fu. His old master's about to die. So he sends him on this like just impossible mission. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, there are these five students that you know nothing about and they all have secret identities. And uh, you got to go out and find them for me and making sure that they're not using any of the styles I taught them for evil. And this kid's like, okay, you know, just kind of goes out into the world to look for these guys. And it's really interesting. Like one guy, you know, fights like with like a centipede, one's like a snake, one's like a toad. You know, they all have these different sort yeah. of styles. It's fighting game style. Yeah. And, and you know, that introduced me to the concept yeah, yeah, kind of, like, of oh, yeah. okay, you know, there's guys yeah. who can fight, you know, like, you know, monkey style or, you know, whatever. They, they have all these different styles yeah. to them. You know, eventually, like these guys sort of reveal themselves to one another in this these sort of convoluted ways, and they end up in this gigantic fight. The young student is able to align himself with one of the guys, uh, the gecko style, lizard style guy who can run up walls and, you know, and ends up winning the, the fight. And they recover this master's treasure and give it to charity. And, you know, everybody's back on the righteous path again. And it, it's all wonderful. I love the movie, you know, not just for the styles, but 
like these guys had just these outrageous costumes uh yeah. like you know red leather and like just all sorts of wacky stuff and i'm like this is this is a little different like you know it comes from that those, those same studios but you know my moment of truth from it is like you know one of the guys reveals himself like the scorpion is the last guy to reveal himself and they've been speculating for the whole movie about who the scorpion is and it turns out it's this policeman that they've been working with the entire time and like you know, oh. Oh, yeah, everybody's you know, just dumbfounded <laughs> to find this out. You know, I think I spent, you know, three or four weeks after that trying to fight like the snake guy, you know, like trying to hit people with like little forked, you know, hits. And, like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, these like really cool fighting style. But that movie sort of pulled out that, you know, that well-worn kung fu movie trope. Uh, of you know the righteous path and you know people sure. who will use kung fu for evil and their need to be stopped and everything that came out later in a movie that was even just so much more bonkers which was very gordy's the last dragon like i looked at that movie and i have no idea even today what it is it is like equal parts kung fu movie black exploitation uh vehicle for Barry Gordy's you know music and then his artists you know he's yeah. the guy who started Motown Records and I'm like what is this guy doing making a kung fu movie out of nowhere yeah. <laughs> it was just the oddest oddest thing and then you realize you know there's probably 20 minutes in this movie that you just cut right out because they're all just music videos from you yeah. know his yeah. labels yeah. artists so yeah exactly you know, El Barge and you know to the beat of the rhythm of the, of the night yeah that was a big hit <laughs> that was that was some good marketing it was a huge uh, hit know. and i would tell you as I, <laughs> as I watched this movie again last night i was singing along to that part i you know i i, I knew uh -huh. the words well more than i thought i did so but i want you to tell me that the villain in this movie is not one of the most iconic villains since dark oh. freaking vader show you enough, get show enough show <laughs> enough <laughs> this wild like tall skinny like ripped though black guy with this like kabuki frizzy hair and this Fu Manchu mustache. And he walks around all the time, like with the scowl on his face and he's yeah. you know, ah, football pads and outrageous yeah. pants and like Chuck Taylors. That's his outfit. He switches yeah. outfits probably four or five times, but it's always the same thing. Like football yeah. pads of a different color and like yep, yep. weird pants and Chuck Taylors. Unbelievable villain just like goes after the guy in the you know and just oh. harasses him and his family. Tom, Tom, Tom come on, he fight. is he is the baddest mofo low down around this town. He that is. is that is true. Yeah, I like to think that that you know when I was watching this again, our hero Bruce Leroy is walking around in like traditional Chinese garb with like, like a sedge hat a on the outfit. Yeah, yeah. He's like, like, walking through he, Chinatown and everybody else is wearing normal clothes. Wearing normal he's clothes. This, he's like, yeah. No, it's an outfit. No, well, it is the weirdest well, movie. It's like movie. this casual racism and yet odd moments of wokeness. It, it was <laughs> yeah, they were somehow having having it both ways in this movie. It was really kind of odd. But I, like Bruce Lee, where he's there, he's eating popcorn with chopsticks in the movie theater, you know, like <laughs> kernel by kernel, you know. I'm like, what the hell? But but show 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 enough, like every time he just like he just kicks the like he never walks into a place. The door just blasts open, right? And he, <laughs> right. he and his entourage just sort of march in. Like Darth Vader like, style. Yeah. That's what happens when we go places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, but like. You're the prettiest. 
it was one of those things like they're never out of costume. You start thinking like, what do they do in their downtime? How does Shonuff do his laundry? Like, like he never, he's never out of his, he's always got shoulder pads on, right? Like he doesn't, he sleeps standing up. Like these guys are so, as weird as it was, it wasn't its own space. You definitely felt where it was drawing energy from. It was totally drawing energy from movies like the Five Daily Venom Zone. Like it was so Shaw Brothers, so Golden Harvest. I mean, it really, really was you know, magic powers and stuff like that. Like, I, I think there was a point in the early 80s where if you told me like Bruce Lee had, you know, magical powers and he could turn himself into a dragon, I would have believed you. Absolutely. Like, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. And this very yeah. much like drew from that. So like, yeah. you know, Leroy is chasing this glow, you know. I wanted indicates... the glow almost as bad as I wanted the force time. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> like Cool as hell. <laughs> chasing this glow and he's all over the place you know trying to figure out where this glow is he can you know prove to himself that he's attained the final level of mastery and what do you know like Shonuff pulls it out on him and it's this like evil sort of red glow on him and like when he hits you it like makes extra like red sparks that go flying everywhere it's so cool and and my moment of truth is of course when Leroy who has you know been told by everybody in this movie who's not him including Vanity, who was completely gorgeous in this movie, oh, that yeah. you know the, the power is within him, wow. and he's yeah. the master. So sure enough, you know, dunks his dunking his head in a water tank, and and you know who is the master, Leroy? Who is the master? Every single time, and he comes out and he's got this golden glow all over his body and all his wounds are magically healed. And he's like, I am <laughs> and start pulling the crap out of showing up, you know, it's so cool. and then you get the bonus scene of, yeah, he does have magical powers and catches a bullet in his teeth, which is my secondary moment of truth. But, uh, well, you know, we know that when Chuck Norris <laughs> sleeps, he dreams that he's Bruce Lee. It was just such a weird movie. Yeah, you know what it made me think of though. So some years ago, there was a, a funky. Um, it was like a, it was a it was an anime, but it was produced by Adult Swim, and it was called Afro Samurai, right? It was, it was sure, right? Mm-hmm. This Kareem Abdul-Jabbar type guy with a magnificent afro wanders post-apocalyptic zone as a Ronin, cutting people down, right? But the point is that the music was done by the RZA, who is himself like this massive kung fu fan. Okay, and it has been, like written and directed his own kung fu movies. He's a huge wow. devotee, and I was. Like, because actually, I have Afro Samurai on disc. It was either on like, like bonus materials or an interview I read with him. He was talking about how, for him and and in the black community, kung fu movies were especially beloved. Right? Yeah. A, they were free. So if you didn't have a whole lot of money to go to the theater, you still had movies on TV that you could watch anytime. Mm-hmm. They were a lot of fun. Right? Um, and especially with Bruce Lee. You know, Bruce Lee was like in his movies, they spoke a lot to being an outcast and being downtrodden. And 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 he actually had like strong black characters in his movies. And in Enter the Dragon, we we meet our our black hero. For, first thing he does, he beats up two racist cops and then steals their car, which is freaking awesome. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like but like apparently like a lot of black audiences like really responded to that quite well, according to the Riz's take anyway. And if I'm getting it wrong, I'll be gladly cop to it, but I'm pretty sure it was him. And but the point is like I was thinking about that watching The Last Dragon. You're like, why would you make like a Motown Kung Fu movie. Like, and when I thought about that, I'm like, ah, you know, this actually makes sense. Like, there's a, there's a, a through, there's a, there's a through line there. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And to your point, Joe, yeah. Why wouldn't you not? Exactly. You know? So. Um, it was just so bonkerinos. Like, I didn't even know what to think of it. It's just so out there that it's its own thing. And I love yeah. it. I just love it. <laughs> it. There's so many great moments. There really are. Uh, the, like when uh, Leroy rescues Vanity from 
the initial kidnappers and he he takes her back to her apartment and she's like are you thirsty and and he's like he she, she, yes mean, you know i'm i'm getting lightheaded okay <laughs> and and and, yeah, she, like, and, and, her and, lip and like giving him eyes like, yeah he's, it's it's just it's adorable there's a lot of there's just a lot of really yeah. clever capable filmmaking here it's a, it's a good movie it's fun yeah <laughs> no, it, it's it's a lot of fun and i i enjoyed it for what it was watching again you know in 2022 um and having not seen it a whole lot i didn't have like um, it didn't occupy like a particularly fun place in my heart by nostalgia because I never really saw it a whole lot back in the day. So, so I was like, no, I'm just gonna go just watch it. I'm like, yeah, man, like I remember that time. I remember when there were a lot of movies made this kind of weird, you know, cocaine's a hell of a drug. But you know what? I'm glad I did good things here because <laughs> this is a fun movie, man. Plus, William H. Macy's in it. He is. Yeah. Dude, I was, I was watching like, what I, is he doing in this movie? <laughs> I stopped what I was doing and texted Tom, like, OMFG. Is William he throwing silverware? Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm like, holy cow. he looks like he's fresh out of college and he's wearing the most rad 80s jacket ever. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Like that jacket belongs in the Smithsonian under the heading. The 80s. I mean, it was, this is when he was this is when he was William H.W. Macy. Yeah, <laughs> it was. You know what? Here's how young he was. He didn't have a single crease in his face. I mean, it was no. it was. And he's he's known for his creases, but boy, I'll tell you what, he was cut joke. Right yeah. <laughs> so no, no, it was, it was he good. He sold it, was good it stuff. too. He was like the guy, you know, trying to get on Vanity's show and get like a video yeah. on there. Yeah, you know, it was like the uh, yeah. <laughs> he sold yeah. it. He totally sold it. He did. You see he how did. it led to bigger and better things for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do a good job, exactly. and look what happens. Yeah. yeah. So whatever happened to Tiamat? I mean, he I mean, was the, like, it, he had real charisma in this movie. I thought he did. I mean, no, he did. I thought he was great in this movie. He was a lot of fun. But where where did he go after this? I don't know. I thought he did like maybe three movies in his whole career, right? I, mean, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually did look him up a year or two ago. Last yeah. time I saw this flick, he, he was part of the '80s cohort of, of stars with one-word names. You know, he was staying <laughs> like in Madonna. Easy, easy to confuse him with Tiamat. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Tiamat. Yeah, Tiamat, exactly. He's a, a multi headed dragon, that dude. So, anyway, uh, so Tom, good picks. Very much, very much enjoy them. And the five deadly venoms, by the way, that's a good call. I mean, when I was researching for this episode, I was going through like, you know, top kung fu movie lists. That one is near to the top all across the board. People just like, for especially for that vintage of a kung fu movie, people always point to that one among a couple others as like, start here like, like this is this is the one to go if you got if you can only watch one watch watch this one you know and apparently the stars in that one ultimately they, they worked with that director a whole lot more and they did a lot more movies together and they just became known as the venoms not like there weren't like other movies based off the fight deadly venoms just those stars and they would appear in movies together it's like oh yeah they're the venoms you know it, it, it's that it, it's always almost like like the brat pack you know but for kung fu right you know and they just show up like oh there they are you know this movie's got three venoms in it check it out you know so that, that's good stuff all right so moving on joe why don't you walk us through your your moment of truth what you picked is kind of from a whole different kind of angle of this whole kung fu phenomenon and i'd love to know what's the movie you picked Walk us through a little bit about what it's about, who's in it, and what, where you get your moment of truth from. I grew up in the 80s not watching a whole lot of the kung fu. Like, you know, when it got to be noon on the, the local cable access, I turned off the cartoons. If, you know, Ray Harryhausen wasn't on, I, I, I got out of there. Right? I wasn't watching the kung fu stuff. Yeah. And so I didn't grow up watching a lot of that. Fast forward to 1995, and I'm in college, and 
somebody says, we're going to go to the movies at the union. And I was like, oh, what are we going to see? They said, it's called Rumble in the Bronx. I said, is this like a, you know, like a fighting movie? And they're like, oh, you have no idea, dude. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, let's go see it. Like the Warriors. Says, this guy, this guy, Jackie Chan, he's a huge star in Hong Kong. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, let's go see it. Right. And he's like, it's got subtitles. So like, you know, just before Warren, I'm like, that's fine, whatever. So we went and we watched this movie and I was like, I was prepared to be underwhelmed. But I remember sitting in the auditorium and watching this and the absolute most kinetic thing I've ever seen on a screen unfolds in front of me. This is a guy who is like, he does fight scenes and the fighting is, is there's a, uh, reluctance to his fight scenes like he doesn't want to fight anybody this guy just wants to like do his shopping wear his geeky clothes yeah. like go about his business there's something almost dorky about yeah jackie chan in yeah. the Bronx. he's apologetic about what he's about to do it's that great concept of like somebody comes and they're going to mess you up and you say oh i don't want to i don't want to and then you destroy them like that, yeah. that's jackie chan like jackie chan plays possum and then he takes you to places that aren't human <laughs> right like <laughs> and so i think i remember being completely in awe watching this film of and i remember there were these scenes in it where he is non-stop for like eight to 12 minutes at a time fighting and fighting like not on the offensive but on the defensive in a way that like sucks people in and messes up messes them up I, I remember very vividly him going through the top of a, a shopping cart through the part where you fold it yeah. and then out the bottom of it. And I'm like, that's that. Hold on. Everybody time. I need, can we stop the projector? Where's the projector guy? Stop it. I can't, I can't process what I'm watching. He did stuff that was physically not possible. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole time he has a look on his face, like he's terrified and yet he's completely in control. Yeah. And I, I just like that blew my mind. Like I, the whole time I'm sitting there and like picture the, the two handed <laughs> explosion in my brain, watching this guy do what he does. He yeah. was an artist of the fist, this guy. <laughs> and yet the whole time he felt bad about the fact that he was ruining these people's lives yeah. <laughs> as yeah. he was fighting them. And I remember the rumble in the Bronx, like, you know, you're watching it and it's the bad dub and the, the, the subtitles and everything else. And yet at the end of it, like his, the whole plot, if you will, is that his parents or his family has this convenience store in New York where these street toughs are coming in and knocking it over. And he reluctantly stops it. He, he has empathy for the people that he punches in the mouth repeatedly over and over. For me, the moment of truth is these guys attack his family's store are knocking over the shelves and causing trouble. And he reluctantly decides that he's going to smack him around a little bit and at the end of it he's escorting them out of the store he says if you ever come back again i'll beat you up again mind the step <laughs> he just, he this, like, there's this thing in jackie chan where there's this like he doesn't he doesn't want to hurt anybody yeah yeah but destiny has chosen that he's going to hurt a lot of people yeah. <laughs> right like he has no choice it's yeah. gonna happen and and I just, I, I found myself like I was never yeah. inoculated to the Kung Fu experience. And yeah. so I'm watching this. And my experience was, we've talked about this off screen, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, mm -hmm. 
smacking people around like the endless like hitting people in the face with a pool, pool cue or whatever else and they're angry the whole time yeah. jackie chan's not angry he's a sweetheart really is he's, he's, he seems like a very nice guy he's a very he nice does. person who ruins your day and he, he's got he again has so much charisma that, that guy, oh, he, he, does, he yeah. lights up a screen yeah. no, Deeply no doubt charismatic and then funny funny too i mean funny, yeah, very, he's got great comedic timing super funny but like also like super kinetic there's a there's a physicality yeah. to him yeah he just moves in a way that and then at the end of the movie i remember this i remember this very specifically at the end of it you know this was before Marvel and the mid credits and post credit scenes. We we're sitting in the theater watching it and you're seeing all the outtakes of his stunts that he does himself. He's jumping from balcony to balcony and he breaks his ankle and they take a shoe cast and put it over his foot and he keeps going. And they like, there are people like with the markers coloring in like his, the colors of his shoe over the cast. And he's just like, yeah, okay. I hurt myself. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So and I know that like Jackie Chan later became a different animal, but like early on in his career, yeah. Oh my god. What a, what an experience. Watch he, that never guy. Got, he never got that far from the and like when he when he because he tried breaking into Hollywood a couple different times and it wasn't until this this movie is the one that finally did it for him. Like it was Rumble in the Bronx had like a real cult following and really broke him out. And that's it was after this one is when he started landing movies like Rush Hour and Shanghai right. Noon and, and that sort of thing. And even though like they weren't as amped up, you know, because I think he wasn't running the movie, you know, I think he was, it was, you know, they kind of, they kind of had him on like 70% speed on those, but, um, well, you know, to be fair, Chris, what's his name was, was in some of those. Chris, uh, Tucker. Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, how, how much can you take? Kevin Hart 1.0. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Seriously. Not since like the early silent movie days when people would do like legitimately death-defying things just to make a good shot on camera, had I seen somebody who was doing stunt work that was so like he could have died. Then you see in the credits, like he almost did die. <laughs> you know, like holy cow. Like that's a commitment to a thing. But but also, yeah, it's like in a Jackie Chan fight scene, like he could have laid out four guys already and is still running off the screen, like, no, oh, I gotta get out of here. And like, like a lot of martial art actors you know they try to play up that whole i don't want to fight anybody but you never really believe it like you know they're there to kick ass and jackie chan like really you believe it like he was dorky he could have started a rom-com honestly and, and pulled it off you know you're really you're really really good rumble in the bronx kind of is a rom-com with a body count it kind of yeah, a little right? bit <laughs> I think about Jackie Chan movies that I love so much. This is certainly the case in Rumble in the Bronx. There's a great fight scene in Rumble in the Bronx where he's in like the bad guy's lair. It's like, it's a very Jackie Chan scene because it's just like, it's just running around and it's just all hell's breaking loose. And unlike a lot of movies where it's just like a great big open space and everybody's just coming at him, he's like, it's all tight. cramped and crowded and tight. And he's like running it. And there's this, there's this one segment where he's fighting these guys around a refrigerator Yes. And the refrigerator he uses is, the doors. Yeah, like yeah. the refrigerator is both weapon and obstacle. Like he, he uses the doors, swings, doom, doom, moves around, pops some guy, puts him in the refrigerator, come pulls him out, puts it's like it's like these scenes are always so exquisitely choreographed yes. and so precise. It's a dance. It's a dance, and it's also yes. really clever. Like the stuff, like the way things move in, it's just like you don't know what to expect at all. So it's so it's so surprising. You know, it's just just fun as hell to watch, to watch this guy do what he does. In, in the Jackie Chan movies there's a um, precision to the choreography where it's like, okay. Tight. And then Real he tight. goes to this wall, to the top of the fridge, yeah. to the door of the freezer, to the door of the fridge, 
to, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and like everything, and you watch the outtakes and it's like, when there's a mistake, somebody takes the door of the fridge really to the face yeah. and like everything stops and Jackie yeah. goes over to the stuntman and he's like, oh, yeah. dude, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, are, you are you okay? okay? Like, yeah. And, and the guy's I mean, like yeah. holding his nose like, oh no. Yeah, I'll be fine. Just, you know, okay, Joe, Jackie. You're absolutely right about the precision of, of all that choreography and the mistakes do reveal it. But what gets me about Jackie Chan's films and their choreography in particular is, is that it all looks so loose and spontaneous. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't know how he manages to have have it both ways. Yeah. I, I, I think it's like because... a circus performer or something like that, you know, you can kick he your ass. But... <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, he studied, I think it was a Peking opera, that kind of a dance performer. I think, I think part of the secret sauce there is that he developed a whole troupe. The people who started his movies, it was like his crew of stunt team, like a stunt team he worked with right. all the time, right? It was like his mobile production group, which is why I think some of his Hollywood movies may have felt a little differently. I don't know if he had the whole team with him, right? But I think because these are people he had worked with for thousands of hours, I think they probably understood each other pretty well. So they could actually, so they could do these really intricate scenes, Chris, but there was a, but there was a looseness and a fluidity and a spontaneity. It didn't look like some of those really old Shaw brothers, like, you know, chomp, chomp kind of, kind of movies, right? Like, you know, the choreography was so, it was so stiff, right? And you can see, you know, it was fun, but it was very, very stiff. Yeah. These are like, you, it, it doesn't even look rehearsed sometimes. It's so, it's so well done. It makes exactly. Think, it makes me think, and Chris is hundred percent correct. It makes me think of like a watching the Harlem Globetrotters the amount of talent there is yeah. on the New Jersey Generals to take the punches that they take and make it look real. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, these guys, like, you know, Jackie Worst Chan is, is the Globetrotter. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. just like doing what he does. And these yeah. guys, it has to be menacing or else it's not believable. Yeah. And so these guys close in on him. And I think one of the other things is that we watch the older Bruce Lee, there's 50 ninjas and they come at him one at a time. And like with Jackie Chan, they all come at once. And yet he does these, you know, yeah, strange things to get out of the way and move. And, and yeah. it feels more real. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is awesome. Super Cop, which is Police Story mm. 3. They re-released it. That movie came out in 92. After Rumble, the Bronx got real big. They, re they released it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get out there. So, that, so all of a sudden that came. Remember, I saw it with my brother. And we had been like long time just fans of these movies. And he was always waiting for them to be more widely released in America. And he wanted to see them in theaters. I remember we're like, we're in the, the opening scenes to, to you know, a Jackie Chan movie in the theater. And he looks and he goes, I'm so happy. <laughs> like, he was just Aww. like, he never thought he was going to get a, a Jackie Chan movie in an American theater. He's like, yes, he's here. You know, it's like, and the guy's a treasure. I mean, he's really, really fantastic. If you liked what you saw in Rumble in the Bronx, a movie I, I, I this is my personal favorite of his. I cannot recommend highly enough. And it came out like right around the exact same time that Rumble in the Bronx came out. But this is very much one of his Hong Kong movies. And it kind of stayed there. I think, you know, real Kung Fu movie geeks know it, but most people don't. It's called The Legend of Drunken Master. Mm. And oh, yeah. The Legend of Drunken Master is yep. wall to wall fantasticness. And especially the final. <laughs> and balls to wall. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. The, the final the final fight scenes. I mean, it's like he's set on fire. I mean, it's like it's just it's absolutely B-O-N-K-E-R-S. I mean, it's Bonzo, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for real. It's so, so, so good. Um, it's just, uh, But that, that one is is remarkable. And you know, the whole point is he's a martial artist and. The way Popeye gets strength off of spinach, he gets, you know, strength off of Baijo, right? Just you know, basically glurk, 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 throws back a whole, a whole freaking pint of this Chinese spirit that'll 
power a rocket ship. And he's like, okay. And he's just watching Jackie Chan play hammered is a delight. Let me just say this for the record. It's so much fun watching him stagger about. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot, a lot of fun. So, and, and we'll, we'll all forgive the next karate kid because Jackie gave us all this other good stuff. Right. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So outstanding. Okay. Moving on, Chris, let's talk about the movie you chose and, and your moment of truth from it. Okay, so I, I grew up sort of as a between case. Uh, I didn't see as many kung fu flicks as, as you Long Island and Jersey boys did, but maybe more than, <laughs> than Joe. It, it, it's the kind of thing you would see after uh, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, you know, <laughs> if, if, it was, if it was a rainy or a cold day. Yeah, maybe you'd stay in and maybe there'd be a kung fu movie on. And, you know, you sort of assumed it had Bruce Lee in it, even if you didn't, you know. <laughs> He's everywhere, um, yeah. You know, for the longest time, that was really all my exposure. Uh, I watched uh, I watched the, the Van Damme and Seagal flicks a little bit in high school and college. In fact, I, n- I never even watched like a, a Jackie Chan movie for years. I, I just left that whole genre behind until I heard... Kenneth Duran's review of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000 on NPR. So good. I mean, well, it was pretty glowing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <I> mean, <laughs> for a kung fu movie, it was pretty glowing. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, you know, it 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 just it brought my it brought my attention back and got me into the theater. And of course, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was in 2000. It was sort of the the renaissance of these wuxia films yeah and sure. you know th- these are the movies that bill mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that uh you know where where the, the the guys have magic powers and you know in in these in these movies we see a lot of you know running atop you know bamboo forests and and you know skimming along the surface of the water yeah. uh, what had sort of clued me into it prior though was that the matrix had used some wuxia folks in making that movie and so it got a little bit little attention and then yeah. I, I started to hear this word again and, and crouching tiger i'm like i go and i see it and i'm like just blown away what what a beautiful 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 movie it is um and and it's it's completely worthy of a moment of truth but it's not mine a couple years later a, a movie called hero was released it was at the time the most expensive movie ever made in china uh it was directed by zhang yimu and starred uh, a pretty incredible cast. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's uh, t- Tony Leung and uh, Maggie Chung were both former winners of, of Best Acting Awards at Cannes. Had Jet Li as Nameless, Chen Daoming as uh, the King of Chin, the, the future emperor, Donnie Yen as Long Sky. I, I love me some Donnie Yen. He's so Donnie good. Yen Donnie is Yen just, is so good. <laughs> he's really good. He's really good. And, and then uh, as well, Zhang Ziyi, who is the, the young woman, uh, the youngest actress from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That's who yeah. you probably remember her as. Just extraordinarily beautiful and talented. Fun to watch. This movie is, it's so up my alley. I, I really like the kind of film where you don't know what's going on. This is one of those. We begin with a man in black, Jet Li. He introduces himself literally as nameless is being brought to the palace uh, in, in a wagon. And he's surrounded by these courtiers and, uh, and imperial officials all in these black robes. It's just visually striking and intimidating. And, you know, as he's brought up the steps of the temple and, and you know, 
I, I guess it's sort of a forbidden palace analog. It's announced that due to his great deed of slaying the Zhao rebel Long Sky, he's going to receive these huge war rewards and advance to within 50 paces of the emperor. He comes up and he kneels and they, they put down another table full of gold and whatnot. And I'd say, and for the achievement of, of killing the assassins, uh, Broken Sword and Snow, you are to approach within 20 and then 10 paces of the emperor and drink tea. And so he, he comes up to the emperor and the emperor asked him to tell him how he manages these mighty feats. And it's, it's a Rashomon story. You know, everybody's yeah. got their own version. Um, and the story as it's presented uh, by Nameless is one thing. The emperor presents his version of a story and it's another. And, and, and we, we keep getting more, you know, different points of view along with it. As the movie goes on, we get these palette shifts in color from black yeah. to red to green to blue to white. It, it's just the most beautifully made movie. Every every little bit of it is is so so craftsmanlike. Yeah. You know, my moment of truth comes very early in the movie. Uh, uh, as Nameless tells at the beginning of his story, how he he conquered uh, Long Sky, played by Donnie Yen, and we're still in this uh, black mode, really. Sky is playing chess in this courtyard uh, with, you know, old Chinese dudes with those cool sitar-looking guitar. I don't, I, I honestly don't know what that instrument is. Anyone? Anyone? I, I don't. I don't. I should, but I don't. But you know the one. It sounds super cool. Super cool. Bam, yeah, yeah, bam, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's revealed that his opponent is actually uh, the equivalent of Imperial Secret Service. Yeah, he he is there to take Sky down, and he's got like a troop of seven dudes with him, and they go after Sky together and alone, and you know all to to no avail. Sky defeats them without even pulling the scabbard, the leather scabbard off his spear. Nameless shows up and and says, announces that uh, Sky's under arrest, and they they fight briefly again with with this spear of skies scabbarded until nameless convinces him that okay you have to fight he sky takes off the the scabbard of his beautiful spear oh and so pretty nameless is meanwhile asking the old man the hey could you play us another tune because this is really the jam <laughs> it's it, it's like all these these martial arts movies movie tropes it, it's it, it's like Chinese Tolkien, sort of. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's yeah. kind of the impression I get. Yeah, these are, I think, uh, very old pieties that are being invoked in the scene. And as Sky and Nameless face each other with his, you know, Sky's got his beautiful spear revealed. The scene goes black and white, and they are fighting this battle in their mind. And it's nuts. It is the <laughs> most amazing martial yeah. arts battle ever in my opinion it's so it, good it, i agree they they do a, a very smart job with editing no doubt about it because yep, yep. there's so much so many impossibilities but but uh you know the way that donnie yen moves around and on his spear is just it's just stirring it, it, it gets me every time and yeah. you know in our current DD campaign i i, I was desperate to play a long sky. I wanted to be a spear monk. <laughs> yep. And 
my kid announces, oh, I want to be a monk. And, you know, what kind of father would I be? <laughs> a father but, prepared for sacrifice, because I would have totally approved that long sky monk, man. In a heartbeat, I would have approved it. Absolutely. <laughs> when you listen, Eli, you know you hurt me bad. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you did, Eli. Look what you did. <laughs> so uh, it's this, this really yeah. unbelievable fight. And yeah. and then, you know, as 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 the, the old man playing the music, you know, breaks a string of his instrument, bang, you know, they, they come back to reality and within like you know a stroke, it's over. Yeah. It's a great fight, and it's only the beginning in this movie, which just gets prettier and prettier. Yeah. And you know, what you think is going on is not what's going on. And that also is not what's going on. <laughs> and yeah. and, yeah. and you know, it, it really plays out over the long term there's so much tragedy and so many lies and yeah. it's it's really a beautiful movie it's also an amazing piece of propaganda for imperial imperialism in china i mean oh my god it, yes it, it really is that and that's why i think it was made the, the chinese government was very much behind this movie yeah. oh yeah for sure yeah, no, no, I, I think the, the the biggest criticism I've seen on this is just that ultimately, um, despite the manifest beauty of it and the beautiful choreography and all that sort of thing, it's kind of a very strong argument for the virtues of tyranny. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and ultimately it's like, yeah, you know what, when you're a king, you got, you got to do horrible things, but hey, you know, look at the great thing that, that the king's going to make us, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's very much defending the whole, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs kind of. Deal. Absolutely. But, but it's also... <laughs> it's legitimizing the king because because the king is absolutely as badass as anybody else it turns out you think he's a coward who hasn't yeah. been allowing with anybody within a hundred paces of him for yeah. three years and it turns out no he's a badass no he is he is yeah <laughs> no no, no for sure movie. yeah no. i love how these enormously complex you know plot lines and stuff have evolved within this genre you know, we've, we've come a long way since like, all right, we need a plot that's going to excuse a fight between Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. How do we make that happen to, you know, these things are like exactly. mystery stories and, you know, what yeah. is going on is not going on. And yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> sort of tangential question to that is, do we consider the golden child with Eddie Murphy, a Kung Fu movie? <laughs> That's an Eddie Murphy movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think I, I, I want the knife. Yeah, no. Right, <laughs> Tom. Tom. Every single time for the last twenty-five years, I've asked for a knife in the kitchen. That's exactly how I've done it. And that's <laughs> the 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 chosen one will ask again. Like, right? Like, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. so it's not very successful, I gather. Yeah, no, yeah, I've yeah. never gotten it on the first try. No, see, I, I, I. Want the knife? <laughs> the chosen one will ask again. The, the thing about Hero, violence has never looked so beautiful. The way it's shot, the way they use wuxia techniques, and everybody's sort of floating around, and moving kind of weird, weird, weird speeds, and the color and, and everything, and 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 just the supreme physicality of the actors who are so good at oh doing this, goodness, this sort so of thing. It's they've just, had a it, lot of practice at this point, you know, Bill. They, yeah, yeah, no, so they were, good at it physical movement as poetry like it's unlike any other movie i've ever seen it's certainly unlike any other kung fu we've ever seen and that says a lot given like like you're mentioning from 2000 on we had this run of really terrific like art house kung fu movies aimed at western audiences you know you had like crouching tiger you had the house of flying daggers which is beautiful mm -hmm. right you had one that wasn't too widely seen was called curse of the golden flower starring chow yun fat again um, same director i still haven't yeah, seen it 
it, it's it's baroque. I mean, it's good, but it's 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 a little over the top as far as the set design goes. But it but it's awesome. To Tom's point, a mile away from some of his early Shaw Brother movies, where it's like you know, yeah. I was just so astonished they were making this kind of movie while I was watching it. Like it just kept going and kept going, getting deeper and deeper, more and more layers and more and more unreliable narrators telling stories about unreliable narrators. You're like, you don't know where anything is going in this thing. Yeah, it's a neat I, movie. It is. Like, I've never been in a Kung Fu movie where I'm like, what exactly is going to happen here? <laughs> you know, like, I never asked that question. <laughs> Normally, it's like, I know what's going to happen. That guy's going to kill that guy. And then <laughs> they're all going to jump and freeze frame. And that's going to be the end of the movie, you know? Yeah. The ones coming out of China in particular, Bill, yeah. they, they really do share a, a vein of tragedy. They're very concerned with tragedy. They, yeah. you know, a lot of Romeo and Juliet type stories. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Chris, I'm glad, I'm glad you picked this movie. I'm glad you picked that moment from this movie because had I picked this movie, and I, and I almost did, like I would have picked this movie for this episode had you not. And I would have picked the exact same scene as my, ah. as my moment as well. Oh, um, so good. <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite fight scenes of all time, just the way it's shot and the way they set up tension and all that. It's in it's in this, when we say a chess house, it's almost like Chinese chess. It's, like, it's to Americans, think Othello, right? But it's like the pieces are like the size of like a loaf of bread. I mean, it's like this, it's like this, it's almost like when you see like, um, like chess in Central Park and the pieces are like as big as a human, you can like walk them around. It's like that kind of level of board. And like, it's it's just range. There's like just dripping water everywhere. Like the, the, sound, the sound design is remarkable. The sound design scene. is great. Like, like every... Every set piece in this movie has got some sort of environmental aspect on top of the color, right? You're always yes. in some you're in some sort of element. So right? yeah, you're you're in like a Chinese microclimate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> right. I've long held to this notion that like you can judge any kind of action movie, kung fu, gunfighting, whatever. You can judge any kind of action movie by the strength of its first action scene. Like if it's gonna be a good movie, that first one's gonna be a corker. Now, some movies blow all their energy on that first scene and then there's nothing left, right? And that's tragic and it happens. But I was watching this movie and I expected great things in this movie. Once I saw who all was in it, I'm like I saw the trailer. I'm like, this is going to be freaking crazy. And I went in and I was like, this is going to be pretty good. And I watched the first scene and I was just gobsmacked. I'm like, what is coming next? Because that <laughs> yeah. belongs in a museum. I mean, I was, it, was, start. it was just, yeah, it was just so, it was just so incredible. And, and I know we keep, we kind of keep saying the same thing about this. This is a movie really, you just need to see it just to, to understand it. It's so visual and so striking. And um, I'm just glad it, it was made. It, it really does give me a lot of respect for the physical skills of the actors who, I mean, for goodness sake, who's, who fights with a spear? You know, like, <laughs> how do oh. you get that good at that? <laughs> there, there are a lot of Chinese practitioners who, I, who will I show know. you. I mean, I, I mean I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not oh. in our minds, it's not a weapon you normally go with. But when you see somebody fight with it so well, you're like, he can reach anywhere with that thing. It's fantastic. Right. One of the, oh, I got to say this, Bill. You'll, I think, because I think you'll appreciate it. What, one thing I loved about that scene was that the horsehair, the horsehair uh, tassel on his yeah. spear uh, that he uses to like distract and, and whatnot, yeah. it, it's white. And, and, and Sky, throughout these entire fights, he shows restraint. He does not want to shed blood. No. His, his, his tassel is white because it's not blood soaked. Yes. And uh, it's just a little touch that I didn't get until like my yeah. third or fourth time watching the yeah. movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was a great use of Jet Li, who's a fantastic martial artist. He, I love watching Jet Li's movies. He has as little charisma as Bruce Lee had charisma. Like he's just, he's just, he's just yeah. a very, 
he's a blank slate. There's really not much to the guy as far as why they called goes. him nameless. Right. But I mean, he was the perfect choice for this movie, though. You wanted a guy yeah. who was just a blank slate. And he was like perfect. It was like pitch perfect for him, you know. Jet Lee. I think he's largely retired from acting. He's now doing like hardcore philanthropy now. Like he's devoting a lot of the money he made to just helping helping people. Uh, so mad respect to him. He's, he's like he's basically like I've made my money, I got my fame. I'm not gonna blow all this helping poor people and helping people around the world. I'm like, man, yes, <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> and that is the way. So, Two um, up. right, seriously. All right. So we're gonna move on to the next one, which is my moment of truth, and um, this goes just a little a little after. We're just talking about these great art house kung fu movies. The one I picked is not art house, but it's it's something, and and I freaking adore it. So we've mentioned a couple times, at least twice, I think, on this podcast so far. We've mentioned the movie Shaolin Soccer. I know certainly we mentioned it during our sports movies episode, and I think I snuck in a mention of it elsewhere because I just adore that movie so very very much. But that's not the movie I chose for this episode. I chose the movie that Stephen Chow made after Shaolin Soccer a sublime piece of cinema called Kung Fu Hustle. And not only does it have the greatest name, <laughs> right? It's the name. Kung Fu Hustle, it's like 20 pounds of movie stuffed in a nine pound bag. I mean, there's, there's just so much going on in this thing. The quick synopsis is that it's in a mythical version of 1940s Shanghai, right? These two petty crooks named Singh and Bone start a feud between the notorious Axe Gang, who, by the way, are this crew of like 900 totally dapper guys walking around in black suits and top hats where, and wielding like single-handed hatchets. And yeah. when, they're not, when they're not killing people, they're doing like formation dancing, you know, like in, 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 their, hide, in their hideout. It's super cool. Um, so, so Sing and Bone, they try to pass themselves off as Axe Gang members to shake down these guys in this, this massive tenement slum called Pigsty Alley, right? And they go try to shake these people down. They're very quickly sussed out as not members of the Axe Gang. But then other people from the Axe Gang show up and a big brouhaha follows. And um, what we find out is that when the Axe Gang shows up to Pigsty Alley to kind of rumble the place, um, that's when it turns out, hey, there are several kind of incognito kung fu masters hanging out here who have been too, they agree to put their skills to the side, but now troubles come upon them and they have to get involved. And so these three guys, they're simply known as Cooley, Taylor, and Donut. Cooley is a guy, he's just he's just a physical laborer. He just carries massive weights. He's like master of the 12 kicks technique. Taylor is a tailor. Um, but all of the clothing they in his shop hangs in these big steel rings. He's got this like 10 ring style where he kind of carries them all in his forearms and fights with that. And then um, Donut is this guy who just like rolls these, you know, Chinese, you know, pastries. And so he fights with the staff that, you know, that he, he rolls out with. But, you know, Cooley Donut and, and Taylor take out the trash. And it kicks off this whole big thing where the Axe Gang is going to come after him. They keep sending assassins to Pigsty Alley and they keep retaliating back and forth, back and forth. And, and in the middle of all this is Singh, right? Who's just this knucklehead who really is a bit player in this whole thing. But ultimately he gets involved right when this supreme assassin known as simply the Beast gets pulled in. And he's like the incredible Hulk level Kung Fu assassin. He really can't be stopped at all. <laughs> and Singh and Beast have to pair off. And it's just it's just crazy. Can the whole thing is just completely uh, just nuts. It kind of compares to nothing else except I would say other Stephen Chow movies, right? It's just got a very specific vibe to it. I was saying before we got rolling tonight, it's kind of like, for me, it's like a grand unification theory of Kung Fu movies because it's got clear wuxia elements. It's also got the non-wuxia kind of real world kung fu thing you know because it's set in 1930s shanghai and this this very dire hovel patches are scary 
had just, yeah, right. Um, but then it's also got the whole, it draws upon the whole, the very rich Kung Fu comedy tradition. There's a lot of humor in this. Um, there's a lot of situational humor, a lot of character humor. Also, it just draws in like all these other cinematic references to things in Chinese cinema, but also across Western cinema as well. It makes a lot of Western references. Charlie I, I Chaplin, mean, man. I like. Like I kept, I kept expecting Charlie Chaplin to walk on screen. I swear. Right? Uh, there's a straight up, there's a straight up scene that's totally inspired by Warner Brothers, like like Roadrunner and, and Wiley Coyote chase, right? Where they're running like Wiley Coyote in the Roadrunner, and it just yeah. fits. There's a scene that's a complete homage to The Shining. I mean, what movie could refer to both Wiley Coyote and The Shining? And not fall apart of the scene, but this one magically somehow does, right? It's so hilarious. Like, just there's a lot of things that are just so goofball and, and hilarious. And Stephen Chow has got a really great sense of humor. It's it's kind of like the Venn diagram of his sense of humor and Jackie Chan's sense of humor overlaps somewhat, but not entirely. Jackie Chan's got a very particular vibe. Chow is on his own wavelength. It's so Chris. How would you describe it? I mean, it's magical kung fu realism. Yeah. Okay. That 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 not that, 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 that tracks. I mean, there's just an absurdity to it, you know, yeah. that, that he I mean, that he tracks that he's trades in. But the absurdity always like has this uh I don't know, oddly hopeful feel to it. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a great scene where we find out that the landlords of Pigsty Alley are themselves also, you know, <laughs> like hiding kung fu masters, right? And they're just hilarious. Like the, the landlady. She's always in this like house coat and rollers and it got a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. She's just screaming at people and just like just just browbeating people. Her husband is this like totally just in silk pajamas. He's always kind of like wobbling around, not drunken, but as if he's kind of boneless, you know, just sort of like just, uh, sort of swaying around trying to hit on people. They're all playing a secret identity thing. It's just, just funny, but like her 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 power is this like sonic scream. At one point, there's a fight where they bring this massive funeral bell. And they're they're fighting the beast and like you know, they cut the top off the bell and and the husband puts it over his shoulder like a bazooka and she screams into it and shockwave <laughs> like blows the whole half of a casino to oblivion. Just, right? It's like it's like a wave motion gun. It's so cool, right? But my moment of truth in the movie is actually it's a scene that it gets kind of serious and it's after Taylor Cooley and Donut defend Pigsty Alley and the Axe Gang is like they realize they're outmatched, right? And like we need to get some help, so they hire these two assassins who not quite sure what their deal is but they show up with this big chinese harp they're dressed in these cool you know long flowing cloaks um they got these cool hats and sunglasses on very long fingernails and they're playing this harp as they play it they realize they're using the harp music to send like sonic like blades through the air kind of like cut things in half our heroes don't realize that these guys are here to to slay them all and suddenly like for a few minutes the movie gets a little dark you know as these guys like, you know, they dispatch one character and like, what? whoa, and these other guys start fighting, they realize they're totally outmatched. And this really cool fight kicks in and it's very heavily CGI'd. And I will say this movie came out in 2004. The CGI is not great. I mean, it's plentiful when you watch it now. It's pretty obvious what they're doing, but yet it feels right for this movie still. Like that's the oddball thing about it. And it's just this cool scene where like, they're just powers against powers against powers and like none of it makes sense and yet somehow because of that all of it makes sense it just hangs together in the most yeah it's like yeah (laughs) absurd magical realism and it's like i can't believe they made a a kung fu movie out of this but they did and it's really really cool to watch and it's a it's a scene that captivates me in a very different way but with the same intensity that nameless and long skies fight from hero captivates me that's probably the darkest part of the mo- of the movie and i love it because it's just good on its own but also the movie 
it, it was a so so goofy and so slapstick in so many different ways managed to figure out a way to dip into this tonal shift and then come back out of it again and it held together and as a narrativist i find that amazing i really respect the movie for being able to do that bill you said uh this is not an art house movie but as it happens i saw this in charlottesville's art house theater <laughs> i take it back then okay then that's <laughs> no, it's fantastic it's fantastic so well you know stephen chow is himself a devotee of buster keaton you know one yes. of the, the funny things about and you can see it in yes. his movies right like he that's really, what i really meant yeah, yeah like he really draws upon that with a lot of really great kung fu movies you know there's a whole sense of chinese identity being expressed through film you know um, that's one of the big reasons why bruce lee got to be so huge is that chinese audience members identified with him he was the first leading man in a in, in movies that made it to hollywood he kind of redefined how Asian men were seen in movies, right? Single-handedly and very, very swiftly. He, he kind of reset those parameters, you know? And a lot of Kung Fu movies are an expression of identity. And, and so like when I see a lot of Kung Fu movies, like the one Westerner is a, is a, is a heavy, I'm like, okay, well, that, that tracks. I mean, I, I get that. I see why that is, you know? It's like Chow is so widely read. He's, he, he so understands such a massive, broad spectrum of film. He actually draws from and pays homage to so many sources outside of Chinese cinema but this movie is a very Chinese movie. It's like there's such a confidence there that he makes this movie and is willing to go, no, but also Looney Tunes, but also The Shining, but also Gone with the Wind, but also Fred Astaire. It was just really interesting because none of it ever undercuts, you know, I'm watching through a very particular keyhole into a very particular expression of another part of the world that I'm not normally you know, part of. And I just thought that was really kind of a fascinating experience. He's the Neil Gaiman of Kung Fu movie artists. <laughs> Yeah, I'll go for that. Yeah, I think he deserves that. I think I think he, I think he deserves that for sure. So he's done some other really cool stuff too, although I haven't seen a lot of it. But he's done a he's done a version of Journey to the West, which is like the Chinese epic. Like like yeah. if you, like it's like the epic mythological Chinese origin story, kind of you know like the Wuxia story of all Wuxia stories. Like and he's done a version of that, which has got to be spectacular, right? I mean, it's got to be. I put it on the list. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> really good. Not all of his movies make it to the Western audiences very easily. I wish the stuff was easier to find, to be honest. Uh, and he did a couple Western movies. I don't, I don't know if they did so well or not, but uh, Stephen Chow is just a lot of fun. I, I totally dig that guy. <laughs> so, so if you guys haven't seen Kung Fu Hustle, check it out. If it sounds like it's too much, uh, you want something simpler, go see Shaolin Soccer. Shaolin Soccer is required viewing for everybody because it's just a freaking hilarious movie and it's a great introduction to the very weird and wacky worldview of Stephen Chow. So I love how, you know, these genres just sort of like every once in a while, like the sort of the, the Kung Fu movie for Western audiences kind of gets rebooted as a genre. Like yeah, yeah. each yeah. of these folks that you're mentioning, like it's, those are all different like eras in development of the Kung Fu movie. And like, I just, mm -hmm. I, I can't wait to see what's next. I remember vividly, yeah. like, yeah. you know, my, my business partner, like every day when he came in for like two or three weeks, he's like, drop what you're doing and go see Kung Fu Hustle. Like, and I'm like, oh God, <laughs> we're doing like Kung Fu movies again. Like, really? Like, it's seriously. And yeah. he's like, no, this, like, this brings a whole new thing to it. Like you're, it's, it's like viewing Kung Fu movies with a different set of eyes. I'm like, all right, yeah. you no, know, I'll go, I'll go. And he, he was on me like every day to make sure, yeah. you know? Oh yeah. yeah. But, uh, and in the theater, that, that movie was in Mandarin, I, I guess. And with, yeah. with subtitles and yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I'm here for that. I really, I really, really am. I can't stand watching dub movies. I mean, unless Agreed. I can really, really, I, I would much prefer to read something in subtitles because all the you lose a ton of nuance, you know. And 
not all dubbing is is of equal quality. So if you get a movie with a bad dub, it's really, really. And I can tell you how many movies I've seen that are dubbed, and that's why the subtitled version, the content of the subtitles is simply better, tells the story yeah. more faithfully yeah, you know, than, than the dub. I watched the Five Deadly Venoms that way, and I was like, I couldn't believe the differences between the dub and the, and the subtitles. Yeah. And like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah. not what he said. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but to your point, though, Tom, I mean, I think – like definitely like, i remember with all the movies we talked about tonight like i remember when rumble in the bronx came out and people are like dude you got to go see rumble in the bronx this guy jackie chan is crazy he's doing all these amazing stuff you've never seen anything like it yeah, and like and i had heard about jackie chan you know my brother was talking about it. so it was so I, so I think that was actually the first jackie chan movie i, I ever saw you know and i remember like okay yeah like it, it feels like a benchmark has been hit you know and same thing like with hero um more so with crouching tiger hidden dragon and that movie landed people like everybody stop what you're doing see crouching tiger a whole new thing is now upon us you know and like these are really cool moments and yeah tom i am kind of waiting for the next one you know because i can't wait to see what it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun when it when it when it gets here so yeah anyway before we wrap up a final thought when i was in my last year of high school my brother and i held a job at the local friendlies often working until the place closed We'd head home at about one o'clock in the morning, grab some McDonald's from the 24-hour drive-through and watch Kung Fu Theater until about three or four in the morning. And then the next day, we'd do it all over again. So that summer, we saw so many Kung Fu movies. Most of them were old Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest flicks. And to be honest, I don't really remember any of their names or their specific details. Even today, with Google and On Demand at my disposal, like the favorite scenes that I do recall from these, I still can't place what movies they ever came from. So to me, and Tom, this is kind of speaking to, to your experience with this sort of era of film. To me, each movie, like, they just feel like they're all part of one endless iterating kung fu epic that lasted for 30 days at a time. And, and I don't mean that, like, to criticize what I saw. I love that I can't remember what I watched because, you know, it elevates these movies to a special place in my heart. Part of a continuum so large, I can never see it all. So familiar, it can be tough to distinguish one part of it from the other. Yeah, so distinct that no other movie has ever made me feel the way that these did then. Now, part of it was the movies themselves. Part of it was also the memory made. Now, my brother and I soon went to college after that summer ended. He moved to Atlanta while I stayed up north. We stayed in touch, of course, but we never got together again for the kind of pre-dawn extravaganzas that were once our mainstay. Those movies we watched together weren't just a moment to remember. They were a moment of truth between us forever. And, you know, a lot of Kung movies are terrible. I mean, hell, most of the ones I've seen are just straight up awful. But that's not the point here. The point is that these movies, so many of which I couldn't be bothered to remember their names, became something so special to me that I would not trade my viewing experience of them for anything. And that's the great thing about art. It can make precious memories and change your life. Even so-called low art. Even something as simple as kung fu movies. Especially something as simple as kung fu movies. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts or visit us at www.momentsoftruth.show. And before you go, please check out Joe's award-winning, best-selling novel, Moss, described by Kirkus Reviews as, quote, an excellent and thoughtful exploration of art, ambition, and mortality, as the illegitimate son of a literary giant deals with love, loss, and the struggle to find himself. 
Order Moss today through Amazon.com or your local bookseller. So, you know, the thing about podcasts is that this week I saw Only Murders in the Building, which made me feel kind of great and kind of stupid that we do a podcast, you know. At least we have more than 12 listeners, which is good. And, uh, you know, the important thing is I'm not dying for it. So there we go.